Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verses 30 through 47. I can do nothing on my own, as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This is Jesus's words to skeptics. If you perhaps are saying, why should I believe this Jesus? And maybe this is the first time you have ever heard of who Jesus is, what he is saying, what he's teaching, or perhaps some of you have been hearing about this Jesus for a long time, maybe since you were a little child and you've been brought to church and suddenly you have to ask the question yourself, not because you came because your parents brought you here, but because you want to know, should I believe this Jesus? Why should I believe him? Why should I trust him? You know, this passage from John chapter 5 is actually Jesus' answer to you. This is why you should believe in me. It's essentially what he's saying. And he tells us that we should believe in him because there are witnesses to who he is and what he has said. And witnesses are very important to our sense of trust and and actually this belief in truth. Every good lawyer or district attorney knows that to have a good witness can make or break a case, can determine guilt or innocence. And so in this instance, we too are told that Jesus has witnesses. There's a Christian homicide detective. He wasn't always one, but he came to know Christ because he went into the Gospels with sort of a homicide detective's eye and perspective. And as he studied the Gospels, he came to actually believe that Jesus is who he says he is. 
So he wrote a book about it called Cold Case Christianity. And this is what he says. Were the gospel narratives eyewitness accounts or were they only moralistic mythologies? The most important questions I could ask about Christianity just so happened to fall within my area of expertise. That is an incredibly important distinction. Are we talking about eyewitness accounts or just simply mythologies, little stories, Aesop's fables, you might say? Scripture, and Jesus certainly, does not appeal to our blind faith, as though he's saying, just believe because I said it. In fact, he says quite the opposite in verse 31. If you notice, it's actually pretty startling that Jesus would say this. He says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. I mean, God himself is saying, listen, if it's just about me talking to you, then don't believe me. But instead, he says, I have three witnesses. He actually has many more, but I have three that I'm going to refer to. And I want you to hear them speak to you. And I want you to listen to them. And through their mouths, I want you to see, is this the truth or not? The first witness is the witness of John the Baptist in verses 30 through 35. The second witness is the witness of God the Father himself in verses 36 through 39. And lastly, the witness of Moses Verses 39 through 47. So first, the witness of John the Baptist. Jesus describes him this way in 33 to 36. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. John was a larger-than-life figure, as we spoke of earlier and when we looked at uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 1. He's someone who, when you first met him, you would think, this guy is either crazy or he has something important to say. He wore a camel's hair and leather belt. He was a wild man. You might look at him and think of him that way. But I, I would imagine that his voice, his sense of presence and charisma it probably startled the people that he was speaking with. People were drawn to him. If you've ever heard the story of uh, George Whitfield, who was a famous evangelist, preacher of the gospel in the 1700s, it's said that he can speak to tens of thousands of people with just simply his voice, and people will be struck crying. It's hard to speak to tens of thousands of people with your own voice. And he did it multiple times a week, all for years and years. It takes that type of dynamism. So too John the Baptist. If we were to listen to John, I think all of us would be amazed, struck, wonderstruck, in awe. He was, as Jesus says, this burning and shining lamp. And for a while, the Pharisees, they were intrigued. They were interested in what he had to say. They wanted to know, who is this guy? And the reason they had this interest is because they were told in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, that a new Elijah is going to come. A messenger is going to prepare the way of the Messiah, the Lord. And for the Jews, that was really important. They lived under Roman oppression. Imagine if on the city streets, and I've been to places in parts of Africa and Asia where military 
posts are lined with guards all over the road with big machine guns and heavy armor, and you're just sort of stuck in thinking, wow, this is uh, quite startling. That's what the Jews lived under, Roman oppression. Guards everywhere. Nothing could be done freely. You had to watch over what you had to say. And so for the, for the Pharisees, they wanted an end to that. And so when they heard John speak about the Messiah coming, they thought, surely this is the one. He's the one who's going to end it all, who's going to finally bring in a new kingdom, a new rule where Jews are going to reign forever and ever. He was a great light until he wasn't a great light. Because what he did was he said, all right, everyone, the Messiah is coming. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And suddenly Jesus walks up. Jesus, he didn't look the part of a Messiah, a king, a military general. He was a carpenter's son. He was plain. He was ordinary. Isaiah 53 says he was a person of no repute, really. He was, a, he was someone that everyone knew as an ordinary guy. In fact, he was less than ordinary. He was homeless. He had no place to lay his head. And so in this context, Once the Pharisees saw this man, they thought, wait a second, if this is who we're talking about, I don't care about, he's not someone I should consider following at all. And so once they dismiss Jesus, of course they're going to dismiss John as a crackpot and say, not going to follow him. And so when Jesus says he was a burning light, you were willing to rejoice for a while until you realized, or for yourselves, you said, well, this isn't the guy. This isn't someone who is going to bring about the Messiah. The Pharisees rejected Jesus. They rejected John. But John was this witness. This is exactly why, first of all, we need to remember that what points us to Jesus are not the bright lights, the charismatic preacher and speaker. Entertainment value, political power does not work in the church. It does not show us who Christ is, it certainly doesn't convince us to believe in Jesus. It might make us feel emotional, might stir our hearts a little bit, it it pricks our interest, but it will not transform us to believe in him, to give our lives for him, like John does. John gives his life for Jesus. He's willing to do so in the end, and he does, despite some of the struggles that he was having, but in the end, He lost his very life. So one thing we know is that you won't be convinced to believe in Jesus because of a lot of books or PhDs in theology. Someone could come up here and answer and and speak all sorts of mysteries. And perhaps someone could do incredible healings. Miraculous things could occur. And yet, I promise you, that will not last. It will fade in the end. What lasts is truth, truth. And this truth is a truth that actually a person is willing to give everything for, surrender their life for. Bishop Hugh Latimer was considered to be what was called the British candle. He was an Anglican bishop, and he lived in 1555, in the 1500s. He and Nicholas Ridley were tied to a stake 
getting ready to be burned alive. And the reason they were going to be burned alive is that they actually believed scripture. They believed it to be true. And they believed that that truth is all you needed to know who Jesus Christ is. You didn't need anything ultimately but scripture. And so they preached that in England. And for that, they were captured, condemned to be burned at the stake. As Ridley was the first to strengthen his friend, he says this, be of good heart, brother, for God will either assuage the fury of the flame or else strengthen us to abide. And then the bundle of sticks are gathered and the light is lit and the fire and Latimer turns to his friend and says so loud as he, uh, so they could be heard over the flames flickering. He says, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, as I trust shall never be put out. How do you get to a place where you are willing to die the most horrific death possible, at least one of which is to be burned alive? Or like John the Baptist, to lose your head literally for the sake of believing in Jesus. You don't go to those places without truth. Feelings, experiences, traditions, they last for a little while. As a parent, I can force my children to go to church, but I certainly cannot convince them to surrender their whole life to Jesus simply by traditions, by culture. I can't convince somebody by talking to them enough or by knowing a lot of knowledge about theology. I might know a lot, but I tell you that no one has ever been convinced enough to believe in Jesus as Lord and as Savior, enough that they're willing to give their life. It has to be a greater witness than that. And what Jesus is saying is that John the Baptist, who is extraordinarily gifted and talented, in fact, Jesus claims that he's the greatest of all human beings ever to have lived, and yet people rejected him. But it is that witness of one who has come before Jesus, whom we must listen to. But Jesus makes it clear, you know, he's still a man. You probably can't listen. It won't be enough. You need another witness. And so he goes one step further to bring about this second witness, which is God the Father. And boy, what a witness he is. We see in verses 37 through 38, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. So you might be saying and thinking just exactly what Jesus is saying. Why, I can't see God. I can't see the Father. I don't hear his voice. But what he says is this, is that you have God's word, and that's the primary means by which you know him to be true, is through his word. It is through scripture, and that comes to the next question, because that is the ultimate question that cynics tend to question the most about Christianity. Why should I believe the Bible? Why should I believe that it to be true? And then listen to verses 39 through 40, what Jesus says in response to that question. You search the scriptures, because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is that they bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Now here is something really interesting. Jesus is referring to religious people who know a lot about the scriptures. 
about the Old Testament. They know it very well. They know it so much that they believe with all their heart that actually to get eternal life, you have to know this word. You have to know the scripture. So we're not talking about total atheistic people who reject the belief that there is a God. They believe there's God. They just don't think Jesus is that God. And so they reject him. But that's where it starts. The starting point is God's word. If you want to know God, God the Father, you have to know God's word. You have to believe God's word. And you not only have to believe God's word, you have to believe that God's word is about Jesus. And so some people have a hard enough saying, I can't believe scripture as true. Some people, like the Pharisees, say, I believe scripture is true, but it only speaks about God the Father. I'm going to read it the way I want to read it. And Jesus then says, no, there's only one way to read scripture. One way to know God the Father is true. You have to actually believe it is about me. And that is something that Satan will attack and our sinful hearts will cloud our judgment in our hearts. It will keep us from believing God through his word. In the very beginning of human existence, there was Adam and Eve. And in Genesis chapter three, we are told that Satan, craftier than more than any other being, he goes to Eve and his starting point of attacking Eve is by bringing doubt and undermining God's word. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, the thing about Satan is that he knows a lot about God's word, about scripture. He knows exactly what God said, but what he's able to do is to subtly twist God's word enough Keep a sort of a truth, but enough of a lie to bring about confusion for Eve and for every human being. And that's the essence of true deception, is you know a lot of truth and a lot of lies, and you mix it all together, and in that you cannot distinguish truth and lie. And this is essentially the enemy's tactic and scheme, to undermine the character of God, you have to get to his word. To get to Christians or non-Christians, you make sure that they don't believe scripture to be true. And if you listen to any critique of Christianity, it always starts with the Bible, with scripture. Rightly so, because we are a people who stand on a written word. Everything we hold to be dear and true about Jesus is because of what scripture teaches about it. Not because we feel it, not because we read a bunch of books about it, but because we see this is what the Bible says. And for all Christians, when we read scripture, what we do is we say, yes, scripture is true. And one way that we verify the truth of scripture is to see its fruits. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 17, every good tree bears good fruit. The test, one test, there are numerous tests, but one test of scripture's veracity is its fruit. What happens in our world and how do I compare that with scripture? Does it make sense? Any person who goes back and studies world history, and I've had the privilege of doing that and aligning it with scripture, you see how parallel events align with exactly what God says in his word and exactly how millennia 
of history plays out. And God's design is perfectly laid out in, in Scripture. Trusting God's design, as we've been speaking about for the past two weeks and tonight as well, when it comes to family and marriage and parenting. And by the way, notice those things that are established at the very beginning of creation in Genesis chapter 2 and 3 are the very things that are being um, attacked, undermined today. It has been for a long time. It's this idea of what is the design of a human being, of the nature of a human being, of the nature of the relationships between human beings, of the relationship of marriage between a man and a woman, all of these things that God has laid out in perfect design, that's the place where all questions, all concerns, all lies and deceptions sort of flow out of that. And this is how we see what is the optimal path to human flourishing. Is it the way of human beings and their own mindset? I think we're seeing a, a dangerous path towards that end that will not lead to flourishing, but destruction. But when we think about what is it that actually leads to greater joy, it is certainly God's word. It's one of the points we've been trying to nail down for these past few weeks in marriage and parenting. Sometimes it's so counterintuitive to our own souls because our souls think, if I get what I want in my relationship with my mom or my dad or my son or my daughter or my wife or my husband, if I get what I want and how I deem I am right, then I will be happier. Life will be better for me. That's how our instinct is, but that's rooted on a, a sinful self-centered state. God says that there's a better plan. It's actually one that he's hardwired into us as human beings and into society and culture. Is that his design is perfect. And so the design of a husband loving his wife as Christ loved the church, a wife submitting to her husband, does not flow out of just simple intuition or human experience. It flows out of the very relationship between God as Father, Son, and Spirit. It's a reflection of who he is in character and nature. And when that plays out in, its, in a way in which it is God-glorifying, God-honoring, the ultimate fruit and outflow of that for that man and that woman is delight, joy, satisfaction, increasing and ever-flowing, eternal, actually. But do we trust it? That's the thing. The question I think most of us will have, pragmatically, by the way, is do I actually believe this to be true? Because I can say it's true, but if I don't live that way and think that way, even at my cost, even when it is hard to be willing to serve one another, to be willing to initiate reconciliation, to be willing to care when it hurts, if I don't do it, then I'm actually revealing I don't believe it. And that's when I would go back to the, no, go by what you believe, the truth. Is scripture true? And if the answer is yes, then know that God has not your worst for you, but actually your most prosperous way, your most beneficial way. I know that sounds hedonistic, but that's sort of John Piper's whole point. I, I totally agree with him in this, is that we gain when we live for God's glory. It's not that you intentionally say, I want to live for my own glory. I want to gain. I want to be happier. So therefore, I'm going to live for God's glory. It's 
I want to live for God's glory, and the outflow of that is the gain of flourishing, prosperity, joy. Not physical prosperity all the time, but the joy of life. My heart's satisfied in this relationship, but this is all dependent on God's word. I, I want to emphasize this over and over again because our instinct is to not trust it, to not believe it. There is no way you believe Jesus without his word. As the very simple song says, for Jesus loves me, this I know, for, and ground, it's grounded on a truth, for the Bible tells me so. How do I know Jesus loves me? For the Bible tells me so. Without the Bible, I will never know that Jesus loves me, that he cares for me. You will never believe in Jesus until you go to his word, until you study it, examine it, and until the Holy Spirit opens and illumines your heart. That I can't do for you, but he can. And that's why there is benefit if you're a teenager, a college student, a young adult, and you're thinking, why should I go to church? It's just it's the same old, same old. That same old story is exactly what you need to hear over and over again. That's why you choose a church based on what you hear of the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. You have to hear regularly over and over again, Jesus is worth following. And here's why the Bible says so. And when you hear that, I do think that the Lord, by his grace, will open hearts and minds. Don't give up. Parents, if you have teenagers who are saying, I don't want to go to church anymore, do not yield to that so quickly. That is seriously the enemy's work. You have to continue to say, no, you know what? I need you. As long as you're my roof, you need this. And I want you to hear it, even if you don't believe it. And that's okay. We trust the Lord, his timing. I'm thankful some of you do not know Christ and you're still here. And I'm not, I don't think I can convince you to believe in Jesus, but I believe his word can. And his spirit is the one who does that work. But one thing I know is that we do not believe in Jesus because the promise is financial prosperity or you're going to receive healing and your body will be well and everything will be good. That's not our world. And that's not the testament of and the testimony of scripture. The Bible tells us actually over and over again that sometimes God intentionally decides not to heal, not to prosper physically and financially, because he wants us to worship him even in spite and despite that. This week I received an email from Johnny and friends and just a little newsletter, and they had said it was, this week was the 56th anniversary of her diving accident, where she became a paraplegic, a quadriplegic. And I've read numerous books by Johnny, and despite the temptations to succumb to self-pity, which I've heard her in testimonies of how every day, I mean, if you can imagine, she can't move any part of her body. She has to completely 100% rely on her husband to carry her, brush her teeth, bathe her. Some of you, some I know I felt this way. I was thinking when my kids could finally brush their own teeth, I was so happy. I, I, I don't like brushing my own teeth, 
I think, I came to realize yesterday, I was talking to Sue about this, and we were saying, you know, I realize I just don't like washing anything. I don't like washing teeth, dishes, clothing, bodies, and that includes my own, by the way. <laughs> but I do it now because I have to. Imagine you can't even do it at all, and you have to do it for another. I could say, oh, after you're three years old, now you can do it yourself. You don't have to belt them in anymore. What if you had to do that for your loved one for the rest of your life? How would you feel? How would you feel if, actually, as hard as it is for the caregiver, think about the guilt you would feel of your loved one having to do that for you. That's her life. Don't you think it could be very easy to, to succumb to self-pity in that context and to be angry at God? But in this newsletter, she said, God had a plan regarding the diving accident, and it was good. Just that one phrase. And I listen to that and I say, the only way she can say those words is because she believes the Bible. She believes scripture, the truth of who Jesus is, what he has done, and how it gives her joy in the midst of struggle, in the midst of trials. And that's the story that we see all throughout scripture. That's why Jesus died on a cross. He didn't live a prosperous life. He died on a cross a terrifying, terrible, horrific death because all those who would follow Jesus would in some way understand a little bit about that cross when we don't feel like turning to the Lord, when we don't feel as though God is good or faithful. I'm so thankful for heroes of the Bible like Peter because Peter, he's a really broken hero, you know, Peter's story is, it's sort of ludicrous. If you were Peter, would you want your story in the Bible like that? Wouldn't you say to John, Matthew, Luke, Mark, you'd be like, hey guys, when you write the part about the denial, can you just leave out a few parts? And you know those parts where I said, I'm going to even die for you. Everyone else is going to leave. I'm gonna, can you leave that one out as well? And also the other part where I was, I was saying, you know, what, what's, where's, what's going to happen to him? I mean, there's so many parts of Peter's life that is shameful. If you were writing a story, and Peter, by the way, he wrote a letter that we have in the New Testament. Wouldn't you, if honestly, I'd be very tempted. If I'm writing a letter, I'd be like, oh, by the way, everyone, you know, let me just give my side of the story about what, what all Matthew, Mark, and John, and Luke were saying about me. I guess, let me give you a different side. It's what a testament to the fact that this is real proof that scripture is true. Because nobody writes those type of stories. And then Paul, he killed people. He killed Christians. If you were Paul and he had a lot of space to write things, wouldn't you write, uh, you know, I didn't really bring Christians to their death. I didn't really imprison them. I, I think you get the point. Scripture has a bunch of stories from writers who really messed up people. And when they spoke, they spoke, though, to say, I want people to know this dark story because it tells the reason of why Jesus had to die on a cross. But I also, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, I also want to tell this story of death because there's resurrection, there's life, there's new life. 
And this is the wonderment of Scripture. We must read Scripture, the Bible, because it is the witness of God himself. He's telling us, I want you to see my son through his word. Every time when you spend time with him in the mornings or in the evenings, you must not leave those times of reading. Do not let it go without saying, show me Jesus. Even if you're a skeptic, you can say, God, if you're real, show me Jesus in this word. Let me see him. Let me see how he comes out here. Because I was told that I will see Christ through this and show me. There are people who have memorized scripture, who have doctorates in theology and in in biblical studies and Greek and Hebrew, from Cambridge, from Oxford, from Harvard, who are avid readers of scripture but do not believe in Jesus. So one thing I know is you can go to seminary, you can have study, you can memorize, but you actually have no relationship to Christ. That is possible. It happens. It really does. In fact, Jesus is actually pointing out those people. Look at what he says. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and they bear witness about me. They're more focused on the scripture than on the value of what scripture is all about, which is Jesus. That's what he's saying. I have this problem as I age, which is I'm losing things. I don't know if any of you have that problem at all. It's probably just me because I, I, that's where I'm at. None of you do that. But the one thing I lose quite often is my wallet. Um, it's all over the place. I'm always asking, I was always asking Sue, do you know where my wallet is? Do you know where my wallet is? And she would always say, it's, it's in your pocket or it's, you know, it's somewhere. And I go, oh, yeah. Well, here's the thing. My wallet um, actually, I don't know if I have it on me. <laughs> no, it's not on me. But I, w- I would have pulled it out and showed you. But my wallet, I think I paid $15 for it. Um, I used to have a really thick wallet. But, you know, if you put it in your back pocket, you get back aches. You all should not have big wallets. And if you have a lot of receipts, take out those receipts. Get rid of them. And most, I ha- Now in my wallet, I have my driver's license, credit cards. That's it actually. But let's, sometimes I have cash. Actually, I think I do have cash now. And then sometimes I have, actually I don't, but uh, some, let's say I had a memento, like something that Sua gave me that's priceless. So what makes this wallet worthwhile? Why do I care so much about it when I lose it? You know why I care? It's not the wallet. I could always buy a new one, but it's, oh, I have to go to the DMV. <laughs> You know, no one wants to go to DMV to get their new driver's license. Oh, you have to cancel your credit cards. Oh, there's some cash. Maybe I had like $500 in my, cat, in my wallet. And then on top of that, worst of all, I have this priceless memento from someone who I consider precious to me. That's the thing is that we will search for something that is valuable, but the container that is valueless is not why we search it. It's what's inside Scripture is valuable not because it's the Bible. Now, this is something that you have to keep in mind is that the problem is when we look at Scripture and we learn theology, and I know how to talk about all sorts of questions, but if I am not struck with a deep awe and 
humility and wonderment and amazement of Jesus because of Scripture, then that Scripture is meaningless. In fact, it actually hinders me from knowing who Christ is. I have a, I, I've shared this before, but when I was in seminary, there were numerous people who did not go to church on Sundays because they were studying the Bible. And these were people who are training to be pastors. They're going to preach God's word to a people on Sunday, and they didn't go to church on Sunday because they were so busy studying the Greek. And some of you have gone to seminary. You know when you're studying and taking apart the Bible, you can very readily lose your heart for Jesus. It's such a conundrum, but it happens. That's what happened to the Pharisees, and it happens to us. Eternal life is important. Theology is great. Doctrine is important. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 too, and if I have prophetic powers, understand all mysteries, have all knowledge, including theological knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, what type of love? Agape love. Uh, the love of God himself. A love for God. A, the love that God has for me. The love for him. You can pastor, you can be a missionary, you can attend seminary, you can read a boatload of theology books. But theology and the study of doctrine is meaningless without Jesus. We have to be humble because Jesus is the truth and that's found in his word. And without this, we are in danger of losing our souls even though we know a lot. Satan knows a lot about scripture, but he has no love for Christ. So seminary, my friends, don't go there. It really will be a cemetery if you actually have no love for Jesus. This leads to the final witness of all, which is Moses. Moses is an interesting witness. In verses 45 to 47, Jesus says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. His name is Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses... You would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, out of all of the Old Testament, the person they uplifted the most was Moses. He wrote the first five books of the Bible. And so for them, while there were the prophets, the law was essential. It was critical. It was everything to them. Everything else was secondary to the law. And Listen again to what Jesus is saying in verse 46. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. He being Moses wrote of me. Now you have to stop and think. That means Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But we know that directly, we don't really see Jesus being written about by Moses. The only way you might say is, well, Jesus' name in Hebrew is Yeshua, and so maybe just similarly to Joshua. So is that what Jesus is talking about? And the answer is no. He's saying that, for example, we're told that when God created the world in Genesis, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus was the creator of the world in Colossians 1. When we are told that God delivered the people of Israel out of Egypt. You know what Jude says? Jesus was the one who delivered the people out of Egypt. 
And that is so startling to a Jew, especially to a Pharisee. They would think, what? What are you talking about? And yet, that's exactly what Jesus is saying, as we're going to see throughout, is that to know Jesus is not just to read the New Testament, but to read the Old. And to read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, and to see Christ even in the Old Testament. For me, this was mind-boggling. This I didn't always see scripture this way. When I first learned how to read the Bible, I learned the Old Testament was a bunch of stories. They were self-inclusive. They told stories of Saul and Samuel and Joseph, David, Elijah. And each one of them talked about the people of Israel. And then there was a break, a solid break, and then all the stories about Jesus. And there were instances where Jesus spoke about the Old Testament, but generally speaking, there was this wall, a dividing wall between old and new. And the two never really crossed over one another. And so, you know what happened is when I read the Old Testament, I love reading stories about narratives. Stories of David and Goliath and Jonah and the big fish and, and Joshua around the wall of Jericho. But I hated the parts with the law. You know, Leviticus, Numbers, oh, I can't wait to get through this. this is, anyone who tries a Bible reading plan, they go Genesis, Exodus, and then right in the middle, then he starts talking about the tabernacle, Moses does in Exodus, towards the end, after 20. And then you get stuck, you go, oh. Then, then Leviticus, all the offerings, oh, no. Then everyone stops at new Numbers and says, I'm done with this. I can't go on anymore. I'm done. I've read my part. Then, or we skip all the way to the New Testament. Let me go to Matthew. I get it. That makes sense. We should be like that. Because if all it is, is if Numbers and Leviticus is all about Israel and that's it, and it's just the story of Israel and their records and their record keeping and their old systems and customs, then yeah, that doesn't apply to me. But if it's about Jesus, who he is, what he has done, then suddenly you read afresh the old and the new, and suddenly scripture just bursts out, and it becomes exciting, and I think most of all, I'm always struck with, how do all these different authors in the Bible, over so many, how do they keep consistency? How do they make it so real? Because you start seeing the Bible this way, as Jesus says, it's all about me, and then you think, this is amazing. J.K. Rowling, who wrote the Harry Potter series, you know, if you listen to how she was able to keep connections with all the different characters, she had this huge spreadsheet, and she's constantly going back and forth trying to figure out, how do I make sure that there's consistency? And there's not perfect consistency through that. Read through, through the Bible and look at how many different authors over millennia are writing, and how is there such consistency from the very beginning to now, today? The answer is, it has to be the work of God himself. There's no other explanation. I want to close with um, a, uh, a quote. It's a longer quote. It's from a theologian, A.W. Pink. But I like what he says because it actually, I hope it will help you in reading the Bible. Because maybe that's something that you've struggled with is, I, I get stuck in reading the Bible. I don't find it joyous. It's not interesting enough for me. And, but if you take this approach, I guarantee you, you will see the wonderment of Scripture and you will see Jesus. 
He says this, when the chapter for your study, and he says, whatever chapter you're studying or you're having devotions in or whatever it might be, when the chapter for your study has been selected, you picked it, begin by asking, what is there for my own soul? This is a really good way to start is, Lord, what are you going to show me? What warnings, what encouragements, what exhortations, what promises? And by the way, I'll post this on, on the sermon questions WhatsApp so that you'll for those who are interested in having it. It's a good little framework. Examine it, first of all, from the practical standpoint, with a view to your own personal needs. Ask God to make the passage speak unto your own soul and to grant you the hearing ear. And I think that's really important. You have to pray, Lord, open my eyes, my ears to your word. Help me to see what you want me to see. Ask God to make the passage, okay, next and closely related to the former. In fact, seeking God's answer to your first question, ask this. What is there here about Christ wherever you are in the Bible? Ask that question. What is there, what, what are you trying to teach me about Jesus in this passage? What is there that I can learn about him? Not from him, but about him, about his character, his nature, his person, his work. What example has he left here for me? What perfections of his are portrayed? What typical picture of him can I discover? You have to see Jesus. It actually helps you because if it's all about you, it, it it's actually becomes dry. But the more you are amazed by him, the more you can understand world events, personal happenings, tragedies, joys, trials, confusions, the more you know who he is. From this, pass on to its evangelical message, meaning what is it saying about the gospel? It's gospel bearing, who he is and what he has done. Ask, what does this chapter teach me about sin, about the depravity of man, about the grace of God, about the way of salvation, about the blessedness of the redeemed? Every chapter in the Bible, and I totally believe this to be true, and I will show you if you want to sit down and talk about it. Every chapter in the Bible leads ultimately to the cross, to Calvary. It shows you why Jesus gave his life. Then you may ponder its doctrinal bearings, its theological instruction. This will require you to look up marginal references from parallel passages. Ask, what is there here about the sovereignty of God or the responsibility of man? What are the important truths of justification, sanctification, propitiation, uh, preservation, glorification? The more you get to know him, study and learn, you will be amazed and you will believe. As C.S. Lewis writes in God in the Dock, Christianity is a statement which, if false, no importance. If true, infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. He just doesn't give you, the Bible doesn't give you that opportunity. You either have to say, this is a joke and it's absurd and it's a fantasy, or this is everything. It is God himself speaking. But what you can't say is, eh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't impact my life. I hope you believe. These witnesses, they shout at you. Believe Jesus. Do not leave. And I hope you continue to hear that this is all about him. All of scripture. All of life. You will not be dissatisfied when you trust in him. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for the truth and witness of your word, Moses, John the Baptist, so many others that point to your son. 
We thank you for the truth and witness of this bread and wine that we are about to partake in because it once again shows us that we do not come to this table because of our righteousness this week. And we do not not come to this table because we've been so woefully sinful. We come as sinners saved by grace, solely by the blood that was shed for us. We're just so thankful for the forgiveness of sins. We're thankful that your word shows us this is true and it is the only thing that gives us life. So lead us as we come, help us to be sober-minded, but once again, filled with joy. We love you. We are amazed by you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.